Father, we want to pray with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Forgive us, though, Lord, when we say that, but we don't come to your word to know your will. Forgive us, Lord, when we complain that you have not directed us or you have not spoken to us, when in truth we have not come to your word to listen. And so this morning, Lord, as we look at this passage, I pray that we are coming here to do your will. Whatever your will may be, it's better than ours, Father. We want to submit ourselves to it. Please work this morning. Amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 24. John 7, verses 10 through 24. So before we read our passage today, though, I want to remind you of a passage that we looked at a couple of months back so that it's fresh in our minds today. In the beginning of chapter 5, we read a story about Jesus healing a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. If you remember that story, Jesus went and he chose this one man to heal, and the Jewish leaders, these are the ones that John always calls the Jews, they were upset because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, and they were upset at Jesus because they were arguing he was working on the Sabbath, so they had a way to catch him. It, perhaps you remember how Jesus explained his actions to them. The way that he explained his actions to the Jews certainly could not have been the way that they expected him to explain why he could heal a man on the Sabbath. He claimed that if his father, that is God, which again, let me remind you, the Jews at this time, you would not have said God is my father. At the most, you would have in the synagogue together said God is our father, but you wouldn't have said God is mine. But Jesus says, no, God is my father. And then he goes further and says, if my father could work on the Sabbath, then so could I. He claimed that he had all the rights and authority that God himself had. He claimed that God had given the right to judge everyone to Jesus. He claimed that God had given the right to give life to everyone to Jesus. If you remember, he said this. He said, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. This is the very heart of John's gospel. Remember, we've said this so many times. The question to ask when you're reading John's gospel is what? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the true Son of God. He's the one who has the power of judgment and life. So by the time chapter 7 rolls around, the people have had enough time. They've had more than enough time to hear Jesus' message. And even if some of Jesus' message has been hard for them to understand, surely they have gotten the gist of it by now because that's not hard to understand. Jesus is God's son. He has the same rights as God himself. He is the Christ. He's not just a prophet. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. It should be clear and obvious because Jesus has said it a lot by now. So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at Jesus' relationship to the people here at the Feast of Booths. Remember, this is one of the biggest, most important feasts on the calendar. Everybody who is anybody is going to be at the Feast of Booths. So let's see. What are the people thinking about Jesus? Why aren't they getting it? That's what we're going to wonder. Why aren't they getting it? That's a really important question. Why aren't they getting it? It's important because you've probably had the same question today about people that you know. Why aren't they getting it? They've heard the gospel. They know the Bible. They've been in Bible studies. They've sat under biblical preaching. They've heard it. Just like these people today have heard Jesus himself preach to them and teach them. There's something that's going on here. There's a reason that they're not getting it. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it, it has to do with the last statement we're going to read. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
For far too many people, then and now, their judgment is clouded. So let's read the passage beginning in chapter 10. I mean, chapter 7, verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered him, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay, I want to break this down into three parts for us today. I don't have, a, don't have an outline there for you, but we're going to follow this outline. First, we're going to look at the strained relationship between Jesus and his people. The strained relationship between Jesus and his people. That's number one. So he's just had a strained conversation with his own brothers, his own brothers who don't believe in him, who basically taunted him with the argument that any self-respecting Messiah would obviously make a big entrance at the Feast of Booths. And so when he disagreed with that, they headed out and they started traveling themselves. That's where we start. After they left, Jesus went too. But we read this. Not publicly, but in private. So, some people have taken this little section right here, and they've argued <laughs> that this shows either A, that Jesus lied to his brothers, or B, that Jesus didn't really have a plan, and he just decided afterwards on a whim to go ahead and follow his brothers up. Either way, some have argued that this shows a weakness in how John portrays Jesus. But it doesn't, actually. Not if, you, not if you, you're paying attention to the story here. The point is, he went privately, not publicly. If he had gone with his brothers the way they wanted him to, his entrance into the Feast of Booths would have been very different. Don't forget, it was not that long ago that the crowds wanted to make Jesus king. So we're, we're, we're no longer talking about just some guy from Galilee who doesn't have much of a following. We're talking about a, a major public figure in the landscape of Israel. They wanted to make him king. So one commentator points out, and I think he's exactly right, had he gone publicly with the other pilgrims at the beginning of the feast, it is not unlikely that a premature triumphal entry would have been forced on him. So the point here is that he really did want to go privately. So instead of going with his brothers and getting the light shown on him immediately, like he's coming to the Feast of Booths as some conquering figure and, and arriving and making a statement when he arrives, now he goes up incognito, which is good for us as we read the story because that's going to allow us to sneak into the feast here as well. John's writing allows us to slip into the crowds before the action happens. And we get to hear snippets of conversation. We get, a, we get a feel for what's being said before whatever takes place takes place. So, that's what we've done. We've snuck into the Feast of Booths here. 
And the first thing that we see is we see a crowd of the Jews. Don't forget that when John says the Jews, he isn't talking about just any random group of Jewish people that you might come across. He's talking about the leadership of the Jews. Those people made up of, of the, uh, the elders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the rulers of the Jewish people. He, he's talking about those who are in power. That's the Jews. And so as we've slipped into the Feast of Booths, we see a crowd of them looking around. They're looking everywhere and they're asking each other, where is he? Why? Because they expected Jesus to do the same thing that his brothers thought he should do. They expected him to show up in a big way. After all, to the earthly-minded, that's what makes sense, isn't it? If you can't get it through your head that maybe, just maybe, God has a different plan than the one that you've put on him, you're going to decide you know what Jesus ought to do. That's what these people have been doing for the last two chapters. They know what they think the Messiah ought to be. So the Jews are looking for him. They're looking everywhere. They can't find him because he didn't come up that way. He didn't come in as a conquering king at this point. He didn't come in and make that statement. So we're going to slip away from them in the crowds for a minute. We're going to see what else is being said because there's a lot being said. The ESV says there was much muttering about him. Why muttering? Well, it wouldn't do to talk out loud about Jesus right now. But even though it wouldn't do to talk about Jesus right now, I mean, come on. There is nothing more interesting than this guy. Did you hear what he did with the loaves and the fishes? Do you hear what he did with that guy who had the sick kid? Did, have, you, have, you, have you heard him talk? Have you seen the way the Jews, the, they're responding to him? I mean, this is the best show that is happening in Israel at this time. Of course they're going to be talking about him. Is he just a good man? We're going to see next week that some people are going to go, hey, I mean, we know where he's from. We know who his parents are. I mean, is he just a good man? Is he an exceptional man? But somebody else is saying, I don't believe any of that. You know what he is? He's leading people astray. He shouldn't be trusted. And it's interesting that John tells us somebody said that at the Feast of Booths because that's actually going to become the established position of the Jews in the coming decades, those that reject Jesus. The Babylonian Talmud who led Jews away from the truth. But don't say any of it too loudly. You know, as we slip through the crowds and as we come closer to, to overhear some of these conversations, we might be getting some hard looks. We might be getting some stares. Some people, they might just stop talking when you get too close to them because John says, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. I want you to mark that. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. It's important to see that the crowds clearly knew in this moment as we're sneaking through, they knew that the Jews were after Jesus. The Jews wanted to ban even talking about Jesus. It wasn't safe. By the way, I, I, I thought about that this week, and there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Leaders desire control, and silencing people is one way to do it. All leaders do this. You, you look around right now. We have, we have people on both sides, and, and what we want to do is we want to Silence one another. We see it today. COVID's highlighted it. There's acceptable things you can say. There's unacceptable things that you can't. More than that, I, I do want to point out, because I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we're seeing this when it comes to talking about homosexuality and gender issues. A few weeks back, I mentioned what's happening in Lafayette, Indiana, where uh, the city council there proposed a ban on um, conversion therapy. And I mentioned then, I'll say it again, here's the thing. Conversion therapy, as it has been defined for many years, is something that I believe any Christian would also agree is unbiblical. Conversion therapy, as it was originally practiced, came from a secular therapeutic model of psychology that was trying to force change on a person. But what's happened is it's been redefined. 
and that's really important. It's really important when something gets redefined. This is what was being discussed in Lafayette, Indiana. Interventions purported to alter same-sex attractions or an individual's gender expression with the specific aim to promote heterosexuality as a preferable outcome. Any Christian who understands the gospel and the gospel's call to put off the old man and to put on the new man would immediately see that this definition here means that a ban on conversion therapy, as they define it, is a ban on Christians proclaiming the gospel to anybody who is attracted to the same sex. Including parents telling the gospel to their own children. It's an attempt to silence the gospel. And that's absolutely what it was because it's no coincidence that in Lafayette, Indiana, there is a major biblical counseling center in one of the churches there. Uh, a biblical counseling center that has influence nationwide on, on churches and on biblical counselors. Fortunately, it became clear that churches would fight the city council's ban. The city was warned they would probably lose any lawsuits over it, so they backed off. But as we read about the Jews wanting to silence people from even talking about Jesus, giving him any attention at all, realize there's nothing new under the sun. This is how the world operates. It happens on both sides. But Christians, we have to ask ourselves, are there things that we are being told or we are being influenced to just keep silent on when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then see, that's the way that it has always been. So as we've moved around at the Feast of Booths, we see that the Messiah, the Word become flesh, the Son of God, He is not being welcomed as He should be. Now, what you could argue instead is that what Jesus is actually doing at the Feast of Booths is He's causing tension. He is upsetting things. It's not good when people have to sneak around in silence and whisper about things for fear that they are going to get in trouble over it. He's causing tension. He is upsetting the status quo, as Jesus will do when he's around. I want you all to think about that. Jesus upsets situations when he steps into them so often just by his very perfection, his very purity, his very conviction, his very being, even in our own hearts, doesn't he? When Jesus shows up in your heart, if he truly shows up in your heart, he should be upsetting some things in your heart. He should be challenging things that are in your heart. He should be causing tension within you. James tells the church, are you adulterous people? Because the church that he's writing to, they are trying to be friends with the world and friends with God. When Jesus shows up in our hearts, he causes this kind of tension. He, he challenges our idols. He challenges our sins. He challenges our sense of comfort. He challenges our self-centeredness, doesn't he? And so it's no surprise that we see here at the Feast of Booths, as Jesus has been on the scene for a while now, he has caused tension. So now that we see that next, the second thing this morning, let's see how their earthly mindedness blinds them and allows them to be misled. Their earthly mindedness blinds them and allows them to be misled. So we've been moving around the feast here for a while. We've been overhearing people talk. And suddenly there's a crowd that is really starting to form over there around the temple. So let's head over to the temple and let's see what's going on. Turns out Jesus came after all. He slipped in. He didn't draw the attention that his brothers wanted. He didn't show up like, here I am, everybody. You know me. The party started now. No, he slipped in and he began to teach And the first thing he does is he surprises the Jews with his teaching. He didn't go to any of their schools. 
He didn't study under any of them. He didn't study under any respectable rabbi. But man, he knows what he's talking about. He obviously could speak very well about the scriptures. He can speak so well. He's so articulate. He's so clear on the scriptures. He's so persuasive on it that they're like, where did he learn to do that? By the way, I want to point something out here. I've heard people talk about how the disciples were just rough fishermen. In fact, some liberal critics of the Bible, they argue that certain books are just too well written to have been composed by men who are basically just blue-collar workers. But those guys lived for years with this man. They were taught personally by Jesus. If four years of college could teach one of us to read and write better than we did, could you imagine four years of living with Jesus and being taught personally by him? They're amazed. Who is this guy? And Jesus answers them. And his answer here is made a little bit more clear when you understand kind of rabbinical practice. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So it was common for rabbis when they teach to put themselves in their particular tradition, right? I mean, I honestly, I do the same thing, don't I? As Spurgeon said, or think of how Calvin put this. And when I say that, what am I doing? I'm aligning myself with a certain tradition so you guys know, oh, Kevin agrees with the way that Spurgeon would see this particular passage. Oh, that's helpful. Or I might say, let me tell you how John Owen explained this. And you go, oh, okay. Okay, so Kevin, he, he agrees with John Owen on these things. So what I'm doing is I'm not just communicating truth. I'm identifying myself with a known tradition. And the rabbis would do this too. They'd be like, hey, I didn't just make this up. Right? We all know. I mean, Christianity's been around for a little while now, so we all know that if there's something that's brand new, it's, 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 it's going to be wrong. That, that's the attitude that we generally would have because we've had, we've had a few thousand years with the Bible, so if it's a totally new interpretation, if it's a totally new idea on Scripture, you would be right to go, I'm very skeptical of that. I don't see how that could just suddenly appear. And they would have understood the same thing. So they would have said, I'm not just saying this on my own authority, but Rabbi so-and-so said it, and Rabbi so-and-so learned it from Rabbi so-and-so, and I'm clearly in this tradition, right? That's a normal practice. So knowing that, do you see what Jesus just did? Who would Jesus identify himself with? Of course, there is only one that Jesus would identify himself with. There's only one tradition that he is going to cite as his authority. God the Father himself. He's not in the line of any other tradition. He comes directly from the Father. So here's his argument in verse 17 then. If he comes directly from the Father, his argument is, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Okay, let's think about that statement for a second here. He claims that his rabbi, essentially his teacher, his tradition, is his father. That's the authority that he claims. In the same way, I might teach something from the Bible and then claim Spurgeon's authority as a time-tested preacher to back me up. But then Jesus says this, If you truly seek God's will, you will recognize the truth of what I'm saying. Those who truly and honestly seek for God with their whole being will see that Jesus is the way. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. What's the implication here? If you're not seeking God's will, if your will isn't actually to do God's will. If, let's just say hypothetically, your will was focused on some other goal, Jews, then you won't be able to see whether, God is, whether Jesus is speaking on God's authority. 
the implication here is that if you are not truly seeking God wholeheartedly, humbly, then you're not going to accept what Jesus is saying here. That actually makes perfect, Jesus is perfectly consistent with the gospel here. Because what, what does he tell us in the gospel? He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. We're to die to ourselves. If you are not willing to deny yourself, if you are not willing to have the person that you are with the desires and the goals and the plans and the beliefs that you have, if you are not willing to burn those to the ground to know God, that's what Jesus is talking about here. You're not willing to die so that you can know God. Then what are you going to do? You're going to hear Jesus say things you You're going to hear Jesus say things that you don't agree with, and you're going to say you're wrong. Isn't that what we've seen happen in chapter 5 and in chapter 6? They've been so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. You've got, you've got the, the Pharisees who are focused on their self-righteousness and they can earn their way to God. You have the Sanhedrin who are focused on their family titles and their wealth, and that's all they need. You have the political people who all they're focused on is the here and now and the political situation. And Jesus has over and over and over and over again said, that's not what I'm here for and that's not what you need. The problem is you need an eternal life. You need a new life. You need a new heart. You need the Spirit to make you alive. You need a second birth. But if you are not willing to burn everything down so that you can know God rightly and truly, then there are going to be things that you reject when you hear Jesus say them. The gospel is, in one sense, it is either you or it's Jesus. It can't be both. It's you or it's Jesus. So what is he saying? He's saying that if anyone's will is to do God's will, that is that their will, their plan, their goal, their everything is whatever God would have. They are in the right place to hear Jesus' message. Do you want to hear Jesus speaking to you through his word? You have to be in the right place. After all, he says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. He has different goals. There's a, there's a subtle thing going on there, I think. Um, he's saying he's not that person, but I, I also think he's saying you Jews are that person. That's what you're doing. You're speaking on your own authority because you're seeking your own glory. That is not the way to hear Jesus. But... I hope you see now, this is really why Jesus causes tension. This is really why Jesus upsets things, including you and me. This is why he upsets our hearts. It's not like it's hard to understand, is it? He wants everything. But oh my goodness, how hard is it? How hard is it to deny yourself? Take up your cross. Thank God for his grace, but you have to see here that what keeps them from seeing Jesus rightly, we read this and we see Jesus rightly. We read this and we go, why can't you get it? 
We've, we've read in John 5, John 6, now John 7, they're so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. If they would just stop making assumptions about who the Messiah is, if they would just stop demanding that God do things the way they think God should do things, if they would just stop doing that, they would realize that, oh my goodness, this man actually is from God, and what he's here offering is actually what you need but they can't do that. If they would humble themselves enough to look at what's happening objectively, they would realize that in Jesus, there's no falsehood. So far, he has done nothing but teach the Old Testament accurately and frankly do everything that the Messiah was going to do according to God's own word. That's all he's done. If you could just look at that and see it but they can't because it doesn't line up with what they think he ought to be doing. Their earthly-mindedness, he has been completely righteous. That's the claim that he's making here. He has been completely righteous. But then he turns it around and he says, but you haven't. their earthly-mindedness, their assumptions, the things the Jews are trying to protect, like their status and power, it's all blinded them. They're not actually seeking God, are they? They just want God. What they want is they want God to center His life around them the same way that they do. I, I, I hope the application is obvious here for you. Because it's, it's the same call now. What we're seeing here, I think, ties directly into when Jesus says, deny yourself. It's all or it's nothing. But they couldn't. And so often we can't either. Are you wanting God to just work for you? Are you wanting and hoping and just hoping against hope and just praying? You're, 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 you're sincere, but what you really want is you just want God to get on your plan instead of seeking God's plan entirely. Instead of remembering what His plan actually is, God's plan, again, He has told us what it is to create a people for Himself, a people who have been redeemed, a people who have experienced grace, people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, a people who will be in His eternal kingdom for all of eternity. He's told us what You 100% on His plan. Jesus tells them they're wrong. How wrong? He says, has not Moses given you the law? And they'd say, of course. Of course He's given us the law. And we follow it. But then Jesus turns and he says, but none of you keep the law. You want to kill me. In other words, they want to break the law. They want to murder Jesus because they don't like what he's saying. Now here's the thing to see. How blind are these people? They respond this way. You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Wait, what? I mean, I've been hanging around this Feast of Booths for a minute now. <laughs> Everybody knows that the Jews want to kill Jesus. Everybody does. We, we literally just heard people talking about this. And we've heard it before, actually. This response is classic, though. <laughs> they can't win the argument, so they're like, well, you're crazy. Nobody said that, Jesus. Nobody wants to kill you. Isn't it fascinating? Again, there's nothing new under the sun. How quickly our stories can change when it is convenient for those stories to change. How quickly we can try and convince somebody of something that is absolutely true. <laughs> Which would be convenient if it was true, but again, as readers, we know it's not, and what it really shows is the blindness and the hard-heartedness of these people. They're willing not only to break the law to kill him, but what did they just do? 
They just broke the law and lied to him. I want you to see and, and, and think about this. This is a challenge for all of us. This is sort of a model of how we argue with Jesus too. I want you to think about that. This can be also, if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to try and move the truth around and make it as flexible as possible when we're arguing with Jesus as well. But it ends up the same way. We get to read this and go, that's clearly a lie. It just shows your hard-heartedness. It shows your blindness. Which brings us to our third and our final point this morning. Judge with right judgment. Judge with right judgment. So in verses 21 through 24, he references that story of healing the man that we talked about in the intro. And he points out that according to the scriptures, if they could circumcise someone on the Sabbath, then he could certainly make a man's whole body well on the Sabbath. They're the ones who are acting unjustly. What they're doing is they're using a trumped-up excuse that fits their narrative in order to attack Jesus. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. So this is what we've seen so far. Let's, let's look at this. We have the Jews on one side, over here. They are twisting, and remember, the Jews is the leadership. We have the Jews on one side. They are twisting their own law so that they can attack Jesus because he threatens them. And so that they can get to attack Jesus. He's not doing what they think he ought to be doing. They're willing to say, frankly, whatever they have to say in order to attack him. I don't have any problem saying that because we're going to see them pay somebody because they want him dead later. They, they, they have no limits on where they're going to go because of how much they hate what Jesus is saying. That's the Jews here on this side. They've understood enough of what he's saying to know that he's claiming to be from God, but he does not at all fit into their plans for their Messiah. They say he worked on the Sabbath. They say he has a demon. Later they're going to say, they're going to tell Rome whatever they have to tell Rome to get him gone. That's the, the religious establishment here of the Jews. Just a note there. Because again, we've been Christians for 2,000 years now. We are in a Christian tradition. We have to be very careful, don't we? They had convinced themselves they knew what the Messiah would do and when he would do it and how he would do it. And they would not allow the Messiah to do anything but what they had already decided. We need to be humble, don't we? When we think of how Jesus will return and what Jesus will do and all of those things, we, we need to be humble there. We, we have a general idea, as they did. But what they tried to do is they had their own desires. This is what they knew they wanted Jesus to do when he showed up. We might know what we would like Jesus to do when he shows up. It may not go the way, exactly the way we saw it in our heads. Jews on one side. In the middle here, in the middle, you have these crowds. They've been amazed at the miracles. They can't help but talk about Jesus, even if they have to whisper about it because they don't want the Jews to hear them. But clearly, to them, Jesus must be somebody. They wanted to make him king earlier. He said no. They also wanted Jesus to solve their earthly problems. They don't... Here's the thing, though, about the crowd. They don't really understand who he is. That's been their struggle. They don't really get it. Because as we saw today, they're not seeking God truly. They're so earthly-minded that they can't see what's right in front of them. Remember Jesus told them, he said, all you guys care about is being fed. That's it. They just want Jesus to solve their earthly problems. They've got too many of their own desires and goals in the way. So they can't understand what exactly God's doing with Jesus, but they're, 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 they're here in the middle and they're super confused and they're easily led around by this group over here because of that. And then on the other side here, you have Jesus. And this is what I want you to see. Jesus' story has not changed. He is from the Father. He is doing the Father's will, which means that God does actually have a plan. And clearly, because of the confusion of the other two groups, 
his plan is different than what they were expecting. But he absolutely has one. He hasn't deviated from it at all. He won't change his message because of the response of either the Jews or the crowds. God won't adjust his plan because of these things either. He points out numerous times that he actually understands God's word in the Old Testament perfectly. And so far, he is the only one who is consistently living by God's word. We see from Jesus that he refuses to be what they want him to be. So he makes this appeal. Judge with right judgment. Judge by the truth, not by what you want, not by what would be most convenient or comfortable for you. Get out of your own way. Judge with right judgment. So a question we might ask ourselves in any situation is, am I judging with right judgment what God is doing here? Don't judge by what others are saying about Jesus either. You see, you have the, Jew, the Jews here, but they are definitely pulling the crowds over to them. The Jews are making all sorts of wild accusations, but crowds don't judge by that. Judge with right judgment. Does Jesus truly fulfill the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament? Has he done the evil things that people have said about him? Has his story changed? No. He will not change. And so this is where I want to end, guys. We have to change. Because Jesus won't. Think about that. If you are truly seeking God, you have to be changed. Because Jesus won't change. The gospel message is that God makes us a new creation. He takes our sinful condemnation on himself. He takes our guilt on himself. And he gives us Christ's perfect righteousness. He gives us the spirit. We're dead in our flesh. He makes us alive in the spirit. He gives us the very spirit of God so that we have the power to live rightly. You remember the, the passage we read at the beginning of the service, Revelation 19. What did the church do there? It was their righteous deeds. that were the beautiful linen that they wore on the wedding day. They couldn't have done those righteous deeds if they had not been made alive by the Spirit of God. If they had not been changed. So guys, you and I, through the power of the Spirit, under obedience to the Word of God, we have to change because Jesus won't. And the fact that Jesus won't change is incredibly good news. It's, it's the best news that you could have. Jesus won't change. Even, he wouldn't change here even if these false judgments lead him to death. Why? We've said this before, but this is always worth saying again. Why does Jesus stand so firm? Why is Jesus unwilling to change for you? Jesus will do a lot of things for you, more than you could possibly imagine. But why won't Jesus change for you? Because of his love. That's why he won't change. We could not say enough about it. It doesn't matter how much you say about God's love, there is always more that can be said about it. He knows that what they truly need is the kind of Savior that he came to be. It's his love for his Father and his love for his people. It's that desire to bring the glory to God that God deserves that has led him to cause so much trouble, to led him to cause so much tension, where some might wish that Jesus had compromised, where you might wish that Jesus would compromise with you. He cannot compromise. His eyes are focused 
on the cross here in John. His eyes are focused on being the sacrifice for sins that his people truly need, even if they reject him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He cannot change. No matter what the sin is, he cannot change. Because he is love and he loves his people, and his people must have every sin paid for, and their response is to put those sins off. It's quite possible this morning that it is Jesus' love for you, Christian, that causes you so much trouble and tension. It is possible, guys, that he loves you so much that he will not allow you to be comfortable with what you're doing and who you are right now. That could be his love. It might be his love for you that makes you so unsettled in your heart. I'll tell you, a person who feels guilty for their sin is more likely to be experiencing the love of God than a person who feels nothing about their sin. Feeling guilty is not a good feeling. But I tell you what is good. What is good is when God does not let you go. When God does not let you become comfortable in your sin. When God does not let you become comfortable being anything less This is such a hard thing, isn't it? God is a good father. He will not settle for you being anything less than his son, Jesus Christ. So perhaps you are frustrated with God because of how you feel, because of the tension and the struggles. Perhaps you're frustrated with God because of those things. I would encourage you to see, perhaps, it is God's love that he will not let you be comfortable anywhere else but in Christ himself. You need to run to Christ. We need to confess those sins. We need to unburden ourselves by casting our cares upon him because he cares for us. And then, let's make sure we heard what Jesus said here today. The ones who hear Jesus and know the truth are the ones who are seeking God with everything that they have. Is that you? Perhaps, perhaps you're, you're, you're just wishing for a moment's comfort, but God and his love won't give it to you. It would be better to feel that discomfort and come to God and be his child than to be left to whatever you and I want. It would be better, wouldn't it? If we truly believe that Jesus is returning to judge all, it would be better, wouldn't it, to be deprived of that moment's comfort that we are seeking so that we can become more like Christ. We read about these crowds. Don't you wish you could just say, believe him. Get over yourselves. Stop being so blind. (laughs) Take what Jesus is offering here, guys. We read this and we go, how we wish we could have the experiences you had. You got to hear Jesus in person. But how often should we be telling ourselves, believe this man. Stop being so blind. Take the love that Jesus is offering. Thank God that he does not allow us to be comfortable when we should be becoming like Christ. Stop loving your sin more than you love Jesus. Just because his own did not receive him, it did not change what they needed. It won't change what we need either. That, the trouble and the tension, it comes because we just don't realize how much we need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just, you are unchanging. 
Lord, forgive us. We are stubborn. We are so much like your people in the Old Testament. Unwilling. And realize that the desires you have for us are so much better. To put us and realize what you're doing is so much better. How often we try and control you. Thank you, Lord, that you, you do not give in to us, that you will not change. That's what purity is, perfect purity. And Father, you are the embodiment of perfect purity, unchanging. We long to be like you. We thank you so much that you did not leave us without a hope here, but that you saw us in our need and you made a way through your son Christ for us to be given new hearts. Instead of our hearts of stone, which can't change, which can't live, which can't beat, you've given us hearts of flesh that can live, that can grow. You've given us a race to run. You have given us a goal to become like your son, Jesus Christ. It is the most important thing we can possibly do with our lives. This momentary light affliction is to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory. It is to become like Christ. So we can be with those at the end who sing hallelujah. Father, we pray that we would seek Jesus above everything else. Live for him. We would confess our sins. We would repent of our sins. Lord, we would come and find your forgiveness at the cross. And then we would live a new life in Christ Jesus by the Spirit, seeking you with our whole hearts. Would you do that, Father? In Christ's name, amen.